you remember the good old days when all you had to worry about was getting your homework done and getting home before curfew? Before you had to worry about jobs, projects, working, when you could long for a summer vacation and a winter break? Well, this is the podcast for when you realize that life can be hard. Hold on one moment. <sighs> Finally, he's gone. The last thing I need to hear is him plugging another podcast. Come take a listen to my show, Adulting Ain't Easy, every other Wednesday on the Journey into Comics Network. The following, the following is a Journey into Comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is episode 25 of Poor 360. Quite a milestone episode. I know I've hit this milestone before, but it's nice to be on it on my on my new show. And it's just, uh, just going to keep on trucking this thing along and see how far we get in terms of quantity of episodes. As you guys know, pay attention to the past couple weeks, I've been talking about the upcoming 2020 election, checking in with what's going on with the Democratic Party, with their candidates, and what's going on with Trump on the Republican side, and if there's any Republican challengers, which, as of yet, I have not been made aware of any one challenging Trump in the primary. As far as it seems, he is the Republican candidate, so running for re-election. And I think I talked about last week that he's pretty much announced his re-election campaign like the day after he, uh, after he got uh, inaugurated, so... I, after this week, I decided that was 25. What a better example would be, or a better show would be, to talk about the 2020 Democratic debates. Uh, two nights last week, I believe Tuesday night and Wednesday night, they had all 20 of the highest, uh, 20 of the highest polled candidates debate. And obviously, they couldn't have 20 people on stage; it would just be a nightmare of crosstalk and just chaos. So they split into 10 people. Uh, each night, and they did the draw. They did it based on like random, but it ended up working out that uh, a lot of the front runners were on night two, and really like Elizabeth Warren was on night one in a relatively. Um, sorry, my dog walked in. Why is that? But Elizabeth Warren was kind of uh, by herself with a bunch of, I don't want to say second tier candidates, but she was kind of uh, she didn't have as much uh, tough challengers on that one. Like because on night two you had Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden. And then, and Pete Buttigieg. But on night one, you had Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker. Yeah, so it's just different tier of candidates. But before we jump into, like, what my thoughts are, as I kind of, I watched them both. So my overall thoughts, I had, like, a page of notes I took as they were talking that I'll kind of dig into. But uh, the people at Now This uh, made a four, or a five-minute version condensing the four hours of debate from both nights total into five-minute video. So I'll play that right now for you guys. Then when we come back, I'll talk about uh, kind of my overall thoughts. So here is uh, the condensed version of the debate and kind of the fun stuff that happened and the randomness and all that, which I'll get into later. But here's that right now. Decision 2020, the Democratic Candidates Debate. Democrats are arguing robustly among themselves. I'm going to go down the line here, and I'm asking you, please, for one or two words only. Unlike the Republican Party, we encourage diversity. We believe in diversity. That's what America is about. 
Buenas noches, gracias de invitarnos. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. La situación ahora es inaceptable. We have a government that is of, by, and for the rich and powerful. It is not right that the CEO of McDonald's makes 2,100 times more than the people singing hash at McDonald's. Women's reproductive rights are under assault by Tr President Trump and the Republican Party. There is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a co-worker, who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. If more guns made us safer, we'd be the safest country on Earth. It doesn't work that way. Russia is our greatest geopolitical threat because they've been hacking our democracy successfully, and they've been laughing their asses off about it for the last couple of years. There are terrorists that are held that get better health care than those kids that have tried to cross the border in the United States. For all the American citizens out there, who feel you're falling behind, who feel the American dream's not working for you, the immigrants didn't do that to you. I don't believe only in reproductive uh, freedom. I believe in reproductive justice. We do not talk enough about trans Americans, especially African-American trans Americans. Our daughter Molly turned 11 this week. Vice President Biden. Senator Klobuchar, the floor is yours. Immigrants. They do not diminish America. They are America. I don't think All we right. should conduct foreign policy in our bathrobe at five Con in the Congress morning. That's what we call at home, all foam and no beer. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. Gridlock will not magically disappear as long as Mitch McConnell is there. Do you have a plan to deal with Mitch McConnell? I do. Governor Inslee, Just this next give question us a second. is to you. <laughs> you got me? Rachel. You got me? Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. We're going to continue the questioning now with Lester in the audience. We are. Every other major country on earth, including my neighbor 50 miles north of me, Canada, somehow has figured out a way to provide health care to every man, woman, and child. God bless the insurers if they want to compete. They can certainly try. But they've never put people over their profits, and I doubt they ever will. But let's remember, even in countries that have outright socialized medicine, like England, even there, there's still a private sector. That's fine. We've heard a lot of good ideas on this stage tonight and a lot of plans. I'll tell you one thing. It's really nice if we got all these plans, but if you think we're going to beat Donald Trump by just having all these plans, you got another thing coming. What is the greatest national security threat to the United States? It's Donald Trump. Trump is a phony. Trump is a pathological liar and a racist. We have a president who doesn't believe in the rule of law. He doesn't believe in freedom of the press. He doesn't believe in independent judiciary. President Trump has alienated our allies and our friends and our alliances. He's diminished our standing in the world. One of the worst things about President Trump that he's done to this country is he's torn apart the moral fabric of who we are. This president and his chicken hawk cabinet have led us to the brink of war with Iran. Next to nothing has changed in federal law that might affect the prevalence of school shootings. Gun violence is a national health emergency in this country, and we need to treat it like that. I think I'm the only one, I hope I'm the only one on this 
panel here that had seven people shot in their neighborhood just last week. Do you know what? The Democrats, if I vote for them in there, they're going to take my gun away. Gun confiscation, right? How do you not have that conversation? Well, that's not confiscation. You right. would give them the offer to buy back their gun. Socialism, and in that sense, is not the solution. What are the policies or positions of your opponents that you think are veering towards socialism? <laughs> we are. What's happening? Just give me a one-word answer, Congressman Delaney. Uh, closing now? Closing. Okay, 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, Senator, 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 Senator Klobuchar, I want to get you... That's I want a to, false claim. I'm fascinated yeah. by this. On the this biggest issue, part of this we debate have to think about how this affects... Sure. Sure. Mics are on. I, uh, everybody's mics are on. I, I think we have a... I heard that, too. That's okay. These are the issues that are before us, Chuck. I'm, I hear you. Now we are back, and I want to thank um, now this, um, and obviously NBC, who aired the debates both nights. So now that we have kind of what we're going to talk about, so here's my general notes I took while I was watching the debates the other day, and it was kind of a lot of just Ryan was all over the place. Obviously, when you have a debate, you have candidates that are talking and kind of going back and forth. They're always trying to pivot the conversation back to one of their talking points. Something they've rehearsed, they've memorized, that they know is their bread and butter of debate talk. People are always going to be like, whatever question you ask, they're going to find a way to like, oh, that reminds me of what I've done with this. And they'll talk about like something to do with their career, with something that makes them stand out amongst the other 19 candidates. Because until some start dropping out or some start getting kind of, um, kind of defeated, we're going to have a pretty large pool and a lot of people that have similar viewpoints. So... Really, until we get down to like the 10 or 5 that we're probably going to end up with in the next probably 6 to 8 months, we're probably going to see some drop off. And obviously there's some that are on here that like I didn't even mention once in my notes because it just, besides a couple small points I had that didn't really come up that much, there were got minor. Even Bernie Sanders didn't really say all that much, but when he did talk, he kind of just got all over the place. But, so that, my first note I had written down was debate pivoting. So like I said, like everyone is talking, trying to get their points out, and the moderator will ask a question, they'll be, either they won't even answer the question at all, or they'll pivot to something that better serves their purpose or what they want to talk about. Even when they try and, like, make a, a try and have a good conversation about something, like, all right, let's talk about this. Now they're like, oh, no, we're still going to talk about what I talked about before because I am really passionate about that and all that fun. And then um, next thing I have is that uh, Beto speaking in Spanish. So Beto O'Rourke, who ran for... Um, Senate in Texas, I think it was Senate in Texas, against Ted Cruz, um, and lost. But it was a close election for something. Those are pretty predominantly Republican areas. So he did pretty well, and somehow that made him feel like he could run for president. He's actually doing pretty well for himself, all things considered. But minutes into the debate starting, he decided to drop Spanish. And I know he is from uh, southern Texas. He does. He is near the border. He does have that. But it just seems odd for... To kind of drop Spanish. And it happened more than just him. Obviously, it's it's some that feel like that makes him stand out, that makes him appeal to Latino voters, but I it just seemed a little odd and just kind of just doing it just for the votes or just for the just to be different. And wasn't necessarily a big fan of that. Um the thing I noticed that um Cory Booker, who's also running, he's a, a senator as well. Always kept bringing up the black neighborhood he grew up in, 
and the fact that he uh, still lives in that neighborhood and how he experiences like how he experiences the crime and just the the lower uh, class area that he's in and just he brought it up multiple times and it was a pivot back to that and uh, friends that have, you've had that have lost gun violence he'll have gunshots on the streets and you hope no one else on the panel has heard that and for the best I doubt that him as a, a congressman now lives in that area especially being uh, a candidate now I don't think that I think it's a more political posturing at that point um, more things just to stand out obviously this is all kind of in order as I was watching it um Former, uh, or actually not former, current New York City Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio giving up the fact that he had a black son, which kind of how he's talking about um, the rights of minorities and all of that. He wants to bring that up a lot, and that's kind of his point. Because obviously he's a, a probably a fairly wealthy white man who has a pretty high power authority. Like any mayor of any major city, especially New York City, which is the largest city, as the population of some states, it feels like you kind of have to make yourself stand out. In that and he feel like that would make him appeal the fact that he's a, a black son. Um, oh, two two nights of ten. Oh, that was just my journal. There's two nights of. Um, I already talked about that. Um, one that actually surprised me that I know going into it, um, Julian Castro, who um, was the HUD secretary, I believe, under. Obama, uh, he had a, a pretty great uh, debate performance. I was kind of unexpected, but he had some some good statements. He obviously dropped into Spanish as well, but being the only uh, Hispanic candidate from both nights, him actually saying it makes more sense than Beto O'Rourke or Cory Booker dropping it in randomly, feeling like that was just just for appeal. Um, and one thing I also said, like I wrote down here, was that there's no respect for the time limit they're given or the speaking order. I know it's a debate, and I know everybody I've ever seen has never really obeyed. You have 30 seconds to answer this question. You have 45 seconds. You have 10 seconds to respond. They'll blow right past it. They'll hear the cutoff, like, sir, you out of time. Sir, you out of time. And they just keep talking over this. And I know that's just, they want to get their point out, but it just seems that there's a lot more questions they could get to if they all respected that point, that that level and it, it it got kind of annoying because it happened especially when people got passionate i understand when you get passionate about something you don't like getting cut off you want to finish your thought you don't want to just say stop mid-sentence but i almost wish they would have like a uh, a mic cut off that if you as soon as you go over time you get like five seconds then mic's off and you can't talk anymore um but that that is what it is um lots of cross like i'm saying like there's a lot of people talking over each other, which being just like a garbled mess. You heard a lot of that in in that Now This recording that I played a few minutes ago. And it's just, it doesn't help anyone when you're just trying to talk over someone. And it does seem that a lot of this crosswalk happens because the model will ask one of the, I feel like they're asking a lot of like the bigger candidates, usually the ones that are lined up more in the center. Because you like all the, the popular candidates, the ones that are drawing in, the crowds, the one that have the most um, enthusiastic supporters, the ones that are in the news a lot, are the ones that are more positioned in the center. And then it kind of, as you get out towards the ends, you have the more periphery candidates, the ones that don't really have that appeal, and they're just kind of lucky to be there. So, like I said, so um, another thing that kind of has to go with all the debate pivoting. So it's like one question equals a pivot to a stump speech, a memorized talking point, another repetition. Like they'll bring up, like I said with... Uh, 
Cory Booker bringing up his uh, neighborhood he grew up in and all of that. You had a lot of people repeating things that we've already heard said. And if you're watching both nights, you kind of get a lot of that. And I think Lona, I think I don't think Elizabeth Warren really did that too much. If my recognize from my remembering of uh, the first night, but it kind of goes without saying. I feel like you, when you get the repetition, it's just it shows that you've rehearsed this too well. That you're not speaking off the cuff. You've sat with your team and practice your stump speeches you've practiced possible debate questions and you probably have gotten some of these ahead of time so you have these formed answers and i don't know it's it kind of i know it's just the nature of the beast when you have to do these and it's not gonna be the first debate they have they're probably gonna have probably at least a few more before we end up at the uh the primary election and the sooner they get the number worked down and the sooner they get a unified base they can put a challenge against uh, Donald Trump uh, in the general. Like, we saw the issue that happened in 2016 when Bernie lost the primary. He never really backed down, never really fully supported Clinton. He kind of had a divided base, and that hurt because some people who were for Bernie and then Hillary got the nomination voted for Trump kind of out of spite. And, yeah, that's just a whole other thing, and that's years ago at this point. It's not really worth bringing up. Uh, and that's really... My my points. I didn't have too many things from the the first night regarding that. Um, you know, Julian Castro had some great talking points. Elizabeth Warren probably was my of uh, probably between uh, Julian Castro and Elizabeth Warren. Those were probably my favorite candidates of the night. They both had really good talking points, and I think either of them would do a good job. And let's see them continue and move forward. Um, going into night two. Um, my first two things were that uh, Bernie Sanders, who obviously ran in 2016, longtime uh, senator, I believe, from Vermont. I was going to if it's their senator. Either way, there's someone in one of the governing bodies. So seemed uh, seemed extra crotchety in the in the debate, and always yelled every answer despite the fact that these microphones everyone can hear him. It was just like. I feel like he was just yelling into my ears. I'm like, okay, calm yourself. He's not. He was not very measured. And then Joe Biden, by comparison, who was sitting next to him, because you had the, the three in the center you had was, um, well, the four centered. So you had uh, Pete Buttigieg, then you had Joe Biden, then you had Bernie Sanders, then you had Kamala Harris. And that was your kind of your four center, and then you had everyone else kind of flanking around the edges. And Joe Biden, I think whenever he talks, at least what I've seen now, is a little folksy in terms of like, Oh, uh, he'll talk like something like, oh, what my dad said, or growing up here, and it just, it always sounds a little like your grandfather talking to you about the good old days, and it's just, it, it kind of gets old after a while. I kind of want to hear their plans for the future, not just talking about their past. I understand the past forms your future, but I feel like just give me my, give the talking points, give me your platform, your statements, all of that. Um, Pete Buttigieg was actually the first, um, First on night two to speak Spanish. I had to note that when I was leading that. Uh, again, just... It's the same thing with the first night. Speaking Spanish for the sake of speaking Spanish. Okay, we get it. You took high school Spanish. That doesn't make me think you're a good candidate. Yes, I know you're trying to reach out to Democratic voters. I know at the um, the last City of the Union or the State of the Union before that, uh, I think Joe Kennedy the third spoke in Spanish during his... Uh, his response to the State of the Union. And I feel like a lot of it's just, they're doing it just to do it. They're not, 
there's no real reason behind it. It's all just for political points. And it's, it feels unnecessary to me. Um, one of the uh, best moments I think you heard a little of in the recording as well was Eric Swalwell, who I honestly, I know I talked about him two weeks ago, honestly don't know what he is. Probably, I think he's probably like a junior senator or a congressman or something. Um, he brought up this thing that I feel like was uh, obviously a direct target at Biden, who is clearly, in all current polls and all that, is the front runner, has the, the strongest lead, at least as of the debates, and obviously has the longest record, so he's the kind of the easiest target there. He brought up a thing that Joe Biden had said like in the late 80s at one of the conventions about passing the torch, which is like, Joe Biden in that time was saying like the next generation of Democrats need to uh, take the torch and run with it kind of thing. So his whole thing was uh, Joe Biden, you think it's time to pass the torch. And then Joe Biden uh, made a little kind of laughing, a little joke. I'm still hold on to that torch and try to defuse it. But it definitely was a little bit of a blow. Um, and then Kamala Harris really for the first time, the debate trailer to that, there was a lot of crosstalk and more back and forth. It was getting a little heated and Kamala Harris, um, made a food, food fight team. It says, uh, uh, people don't want to see us, uh, have this food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. It was very measured. Um, and I think it really shows that she's someone who I think can put a stop to this. And I think really stand up from a debate performance against Trump in the general, if she gets that far. And yeah, I really, I was really, some of the stuff she was saying and a lot of her points in the fact that she can be measured, but still have emotion and power in her voice. I think that will help her a lot from Trump's usual demeanor. And she's a relatively young candidate by comparison. I mean, the front runners you have, uh, on the Democratic side, you have like Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. They're all in late midlife. Like they're in their 70s. I think Elizabeth Warren's probably in her early to mid 60s, I'd imagine. I, I don't honestly don't have like, their ages in front of me, but that's kind of how I would. Uh, kind of guess at her age, but um, yeah. So I, but I think in Kamala, uh, Kamala or Kamala Harris, um, by comparison, she's young or younger than um, the other candidates, or not like all the other candidates, but but of the upper level candidates, she is the youngest one or one of the youngest ones, and it just it helps you know just someone that can put up a good fight. She's not going to have the usual things, and as uh, a minority female candidate, she is definitely, I think, someone who could be a polar opposite to Trump. And I think she has what it takes to really take it the rest of the way. Um, and that brings me from uh, kind of from one woman to another is this uh, Marianne Williamson, who honestly didn't know existed. Um, she started talking. It was a little. She's a she's an interesting person to say the least. Uh, uh, she was saying something, and I think it was in the recording as well, is that we can't win with plans. She feels like, um, and she was just like, you have to be actually have to target Donald Trump. She was very, like, all feeling, no substance was kind of the kind of the gist I got from her, her personality, her character here. So, and I kind of, I wrote down that she's the Donald Trump of the Democratic candidates. Not that she's like Bush out there, but she is the most. Yeah, like, it's all, all talk, no substance. She's just all all emotion and inflection, and she's different. I'll, I'll give her that. She's a different type of candidate than we've seen, and I don't think she's going that far. I think she's more the one that's just sticking it out just to to help change things, but just 
her talk and the way through things and that whole thing that she made the statement at the end of the second debate about how uh, Donald Trump uh, harnesses hate for political purposes and I'm going to harness love for political purposes. To, it, it was it was weird and it was a little all over the place and it, yeah, it's just kind of odd. Um, yeah, and also one thing I noticed that she was not was never fully paying attention. Like someone would, one of the moderators would ask a question to someone like next to her and she's like, oh, is that for me? And like, no, you you listen for your name. It's, she did that a couple times. I was like, what are you doing? Um, Pete Buttigieg um, made a good comment about separation of church and state that um, the Republican party is the party of, or no, they're the party of uh, the separation of church and state. And the Republican party likes to cloak themselves in the language of religion as a way to get their agenda across and how uh, the hypocrisy of that and how Jesus Christ wouldn't uh, turn away people that are let people die and live in this situation and they could help them out. And, and I, I, I get that from a, from a fundamentally religious standpoint. Yes. Uh, God is love. Jesus loves everyone. And yeah, treat your neighbor as your friend. All of that. Um, and yeah, I, I get that. That's that's definitely a, a good point. Um, and there's my comment that I kind of already brought up about how Kamala Harris can be uh, calm, measured, and disciplined when needed, and can also be pointed. Um, she made some good comments um, against Joe Biden regarding busing and how it put Joe Biden on the defensive, and he was looking pretty strong going into the Democratic debate. And got a little, kind of a little bloodied in that. There was a lot of things that were pointed at him based on his record with the Obama administration, based on his past performances, based on things he's said in the past. And this busing thing, which was something he came out that he was against. And he said that he wasn't against it. Be, he just said he was against it as a federal thing. It should be a local and state level thing. And how Kamala Harris was a part of the second class uh, 10 years after Brown versus the Board of Education about getting bused to school and all and. It was, uh, yeah, he, he got a little bit of that, and he had unfortunately said, um, said, um, which something I feel like is going to be kind of an infamous thing, like how the deplorable, fit, the, uh, the deplorables thing caught on during the 2016 election, how, uh, Hillary Clinton called John Trump supporters deplorable, and then it kind of caught on it still being talked about, um, during Joe Biden's response to what she said, um, the moderator called time and he, and he was talking time. They said, Oh, my time's up. I'm sorry. And all that. And that my time's up. It's not with the time's up movement and with the fact of his age and the fact there's a lot of younger democratic candidates trying to get their foothold. That's, I feel like that's a, a blurb. That's a sound bite That's going to kind of come back to haunt him. Um, yeah. Bernie Sanders. Uh, another thing I wrote that whenever he wasn't making a point or never asked a direct question, he stayed pretty silent. He kind of faded in the background a lot. And I don't know if that was on purpose or if he was just trying to avoid getting involved in the crosstalk and getting involved in um, atta not attacking other candidates, but uh, just getting into the, the mess with the other candidates. But he seemed very... like I don't think he even talked that much. I know I have uh, some data over here that'll kind of say that how many people talked and they're standing before versus after and... Yeah, so let's see. What else do I have here? Uh, Senator Gildebrand um, talked about the tax cuts to the rich as 
result of paying back donors how Republican candidates predominantly have like the PAC money and they're from these wealthy candidates or wealthy uh, industrialist types and how one of the reasons they did the the sweeping tax cuts was to pay back those donors in terms of money for the money they gave them. And so they actually came out and said, and so she was very much for uh, a public and clean election free from PAC money and the, like the likes of like the Koch brothers. So, and I'm, I'm actually for that. I don't think these big industries, I think they should all be public donations. It shouldn't be these elections themselves shouldn't cost like billions of dollars to pull off. It should be much lower than that. You don't need all these ad buys. I remember talking about this last year when uh, the Illinois was electing their governor. There's just all these attack ads. And like I could see like the same ad like three times. Even on like Hulu and just not just TV and stuff. It was just a mess. I feel like those are unnecessary. But to each their own, I guess. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, if Bryce Haven was the first one to jump in on the... Oh, the Roe v. Wade uh, about reproduction rights. The Roe v. Wade and then reproduction rights. But I thought it was kind of odd. When you, come, when you want to talk about reproductive rights, you don't want to listen to the... The seventy-two-year-old, uh, old New Yorker, get his two cents on you when there's three pretty promising female candidates who have good things to say and actually have dealt with that. It just seemed odd choice, and just the optics of it are a little just not good. They're just, just bad optics overall on that. Um, I think Gildebrand had the the best statement about reproductive rights. I didn't write it down. I don't remember exactly what she said, but I remember it was very powerful. It was very in the moment and. I think that definitely helped her. Uh, I don't know where she falls in that. I know she's one of the lower tier, not to me in that, but she's not in the top ten. Um, probably close, though. Actually, I'm kind of thinking about it. Um, um, Kamala Harris said a, a good thing about how Donald Trump and the Republicans uh, believe in science fiction versus science fact when it comes to climate change and the climate crisis that we're dealing with. That that was a uh, a good uh, statement, and I thought they got on the climate change for a bit, and I think it was it was very good. Um, and then uh, she also said um, at one point that the the greatest threat to the U.S. isn't like from a foreign company; it's from Donald Trump and how he is uh, kind of schmoozing uh, these uh, foreign leaders, foreign uh, like uh, like Kim Jong Un like Putin, like all of those guys over there, and he's just doing the strokes of ego just to be different. And the fact that like he was, over the weekend, was the first U.S. president to set foot on soil in North Korea. Is that a good thing? Some people are spinning it that way. It's just, it's it's weird, it's different. Who's to say what this is actually going to lead to? But, yeah, that was uh, kind of my overall thoughts on that. Um, so that gets us into some... Uh, articles I found that I think are worth discussing. They're all kind of post-debate. Um, I, I had a couple more, but I kind of ran a little long with my actual discussion of it, so um, let me pull up what I was going to see here. So here's... Is this what I was looking for? Um, yes. Those are word spoken, talk time... I'm going to find the one that had the the actual amount of time they were talking. Because I think that's uh, pretty important as it comes to uh, the rest 
Um, oh, that's not it. That's the same one I looked up before. Sorry, I should have had these pulled up before it kind of got a little off track here. Um, that everyone Sanders won. Okay, so the amount of minutes um, talked, I think, is kind of an important statement. So, and it kind of follows kind of the. Except for a few of them, it kind of follows the more. Uh, it kind of goes in, you flip flop a few around, but it's for the most part probably the top five you're going to have. There's a few that are like kind of a little out of left field, but so uh, Biden um, talked the most uh, of 13.6 minutes of just him talking. I don't know if it counts cross talk, but that's it. Uh, under him was uh, Kamala Harris, 11.9 minutes. Bernie Sanders, 11 minutes, which I'm really surprised by. I feel like it didn't feel like he was talking for 11 minutes when I heard him there. Uh, Booker with 10.9 minutes. He did kind of tend to butt into conversations a lot and try and get other points in. Pete Buttigieg was just under him at 10.5. O'Rourke, 10.3. Uh, Warren at 9.3. I feel like Warren should have been higher. She did have a lot of good points to say. And when she did talk, it was worth uh, sharing. Uh, Julian Castro at 8.8. Uh, Amy Klobuchar at 8.5. Um, I don't remember. I think it's Michael Bennett at 8.1. Uh, Tim Ryan at 7.7. They don't have the first names for some of these. Uh, Kristen Gillibrand, uh, 7.5. Tulsi Gabbard at 6.6. Uh, Ron? Ron? John? Rob? It's uh, Delaney, 6.6. Uh, Bill de Blasio, 5.6. Hickenlooper at 5.2. Uh, Joe Inslee at 5 minutes. Um, Marion Williamson at also at 5 minutes. Uh, Eric Swalwell at 4.3 minutes and Andrew Yang at 3 minutes. And I actually like some of what Andrew Yang said. I don't honestly think he has a chance. He's probably, probably one of the first ones to drop off, to be honest. Maybe that or maybe like Ryan or Bennett. Um, Swalwell, I think, saw some fight in him despite not talking for very much when you kind of compare the two. Um, let's see what else was worth uh, sharing here. Uh... So, let's see, the first Democratic debate. So here's um, just kind of some uh, charts found. This is from the 538.com. Um, so they had five charts to show, and obviously I'm not showing these five charts, but I kind of described the context of it, and it's... Um, so Warren, Harris, and Castro flew above expectations. So there was a, is a trend chart of, like, debate performance versus predate favorability. Yeah, and it does show Warren, Harris, Castro up there, Booker as well. When you have like Buttigieg, Biden, Sanders, O'Rourke, all of them kind of trending lower, and then at the very bottom is Williamson. But her performance and her favorability all kind of been pretty neutral, to say the least. Uh, then it has like another interesting point here, which is uh, I don't know if it's a good metric to measure their popularity or what to look out for, but it actually has their Twitter followers, like how many they've picked up or um, went down versus. Uh, what it was before. So here is uh, who gained the most Twitter followers. So Harris actually was the the most. She gained a total of fifty nine thousand five hundred eighty eight Twitter followers following the debate. She was at um, just about um, two point seven three million uh, Twitter followers, and then gained about sixty thousand. That's not bad. Castro, who uh, 
didn't have a lot. He had 220,000, almost 221,000 followers, and he gained 50, almost 55,000, which percentage-wise, that's a giant jump. Um, Pete Buttigieg, who had like 1.2 million, gained about 40,000, so not bad. Andrew Yang, um, 404,000. Actually, surprised he had more than Castro, but he gained about 40,000. Marion Williamson, surprisingly, has 2.621 million followers. Who is this woman? Uh, she gained 31, a little over 31,000 followers. Surprisingly, almost as much as Elizabeth Warren, but I feel kind of surprising. Elizabeth Warren only has uh, 2.673 million by comparison. Gained about 30,000, so... Yeah, that's surprising. Um... Who has the least amount of followers? Obviously, like, um... Booker, actually... Nope, sorry. Sanders has the most followers at... 9.341 million. And gained about 7,000. But that's a lot of followers to begin with, so... Don't think he's hurting. Biden has a 3.6. Biden has less than Marion Williamson. This is just kind of bizarre. Didn't gain a much. Uh, lowest person is uh, Delaney. He had 22,000 before the debate. Now it has well, gained about 2.5 or 2,500. 2, so not not great. Uh, actually, no, Ryan. Ryan and Delaney. Yeah, they're about even. Uh, so let's see. So we have um, who gained the most followers. So. The Thursday debates, Castro was the one to watch, at least on Twitter. He had gained more than 50,000 followers by Thursday afternoon. The following Thursday night's debate, so I guess it was Wednesday, Thursday, not Tuesday, Wednesday. Harris gained nearly 60,000, the most new followers required by any of the Democratic candidates between the day of their debate and the following afternoon. This might come as a surprise as Harris had a particularly powerful moment when she called out Biden for his remarks about working with segregationist senators and his opposition to school integration via busing in the 1970s, saying the issue affected her personally. There's a little girl in California who was a part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day, and that little girl was me. Very powerful. And I talked about that. That was her first point thing, and how Biden kind of went out of that debate pretty bloody. Um, who held the floor? Um, I already talked about uh, the time, but it'll be the number of words. So, of course, in order to, for any of these candidates to impress viewers or gain followers, they need to get their messages out. As you can see in the table, which I'll kind of describe, um... Uh, Harris Booker were among the candidates with the highest number of words spoken on either night. But just holding the floor wasn't enough. Biden, for instance, spoke more words than any other candidate, but according to results from our poll, he lost supporters dropping from nearly 42% before the first night of the debate to 30% after his appearance on Thursday. Uh, so Joe Biden spoke uh, almost 2,500 words. Cory Booker, 20, almost 2,200. Kamala Harris, about the same, 2,200. Pete Buttigieg, about 2,100. But O'Rourke is about 2,000. Bernie Sanders, uh, 1,676. Elizabeth Warren just spent that at 1,637. And then it kind of seems like a lot of people spoke. The Andrew Yang's with the least amount, but he also talked the least amount, so it's not all that unsurprising. Um, so we compared the numbers of the words, you know, so to their polling average. And perhaps surprised, the number of words spoken by each of the candidates roughly correlated with their polling average over both nights, with the being somewhat stronger during the second debate. Um... So the support versus words that got in, um, yeah, basically it kind of goes uh, Biden, Sanders, Warren, Harris, Buttigieg, O'Rourke, Booker, and then kind of everyone else is kind of on the 
to the left into that poll there. Um, avoid Trump or invoke him. So one of the most obvious differences between the, night, the two nights of the debate was how many times the candidates mentioned or didn't mention Trump's name. The candidates on stage Thursday mentioned the president a total of 34 times, while the candidates on Wednesday mentioned him just 20 times. Notably, Senator Elizabeth Warren did not use his name a single time on the first night, making the only one of the four candidates leading the polls not to mention Trump explicitly, which I think is a very good move. It shows they don't need to bring up the negative to talk about the positive. But on the second night, Trump and his administration policies took center stage. For example, Senator Kristen Gillibrand, who has positioned herself as the most anti-Trump candidate, mentioned the president eight times, the most of any candidate on either night, at one point saying he was torn apart the moral fabric of who we are. Powerful words, powerful words. Um, so obviously, um, Gillibrand talked to her the most, Bernie Sanders talked about six times, Marion Williamson six times, Joe Biden four times, uh, Better Work three times, and then a lot of people like Pete Buttigieg, um, Eric Swalwell, Elizabeth Warren, Bill de Blasio all did not mention Trump once. So, not bad at all. And so we're getting a little long in the in the tooth in this podcast here. I kind of want to jump into kind of the post-debate uh, performance here. And this involves, um, a lot has to do with Biden. So Biden is kind of, since the debate, he has fallen a little bit. He had a pretty solid lead, and he's kind of, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's still leading, but he's not leading by much. So Kamala Harris has rocked into the top tier of the Democratic presidential primary, while Joe Biden once double-digit lead has crumbled in a national poll taken after the last week's debate. The CNN-SRSS poll, which was released on Monday and conducted entirely after the first two Democratic presidential primaries debates last week, has Harris, the California senator, in second place among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, her registered to vote at 17%. Harris's surge places her firmly within the top tier, which now consists of four candidates, Biden solicited to the top of the pack with 22%, but his once commanding lead has eroded significantly. Senator Liz Warren is in third with 15%, followed by Senator Bernie Sanders with 14%. So 22, 17, 15, and 14. They're still pretty close. It's a still a free-for-all. Both Harris and Warren saw sizable jumps in their support over a previous CNN national poll taken at the end of May. Harris went up 9 points from 8% in May, and Warren rose by 8 points from 7% in May. So pretty strong jumps. The largest drop came from Biden, he was at 32% in the May poll, 10 points ahead of where he is polled now. Sanders also slipped slightly by 4 points, which is in the poll's margin of error. The drop is steep from the top four candidates to South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, which still surprised me. I don't know, understand how a mayor of South Bend, Indiana is this far up in the, the rankings. I think he's just, he's a war hero. He is gay, which I think does um, help. Um, he's the distant fifth place uh, at 4%. Cory Booker and former Rep Beto O'Rourke each have 3%, and Senator Amy Klobuchar has 2%. And everyone else kind of falls in into the kind of the half a percent, 1%, all of that. Um, Biden's still the lead, uh, leader among black voters. There's uh, a to 24% for Harris, but his advantage with what had been the strongest cohort is diminished. Among white voters, the top four candidates are essentially tied. 27 for Biden, 17 for Harris, 16 for Warren, and 15 for Sanders. Biden is strictly hurt in the horse race polling with young voters. Just 30% of voters under 45 picked him as their choice to be the nominee. Sanders leads the voters with 45%, or 45 with 21%. Leads with voters under 45 with 21%. That's just a little bit of a tongue twister. Uh, followed by Harris's 18% and Warren's 17. 
Among older voters, Biden's still on top. For voters 45 and older, Biden is at 29%, followed by Harris at 17, Warren at 13, and Sanders at 8. Harris's rise came under a strong debate performance last week in Miami, where she confronted Biden over his record on racial issues, including his comments about segregationist Senate colleagues and past opposition to federally mandated busing. But despite the strong ratings for the debate, a majority of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents say they do not did not watch the debate. 42% that they watched either all or most of both or one debate, while 57% they did not tune in for either. Of the non-watchers, they instead say they paid close attention to the news stories after the debate. Um, Americans are divided on health care as well, with all adults were asked if the government should provide a national health care insurance program for all Americans, even if this would require higher taxes. Majority of 56% support it with 40% disapproving of the idea. But of that 56% more than say it would should not be completely replaced private health insurance, 32% with 21% saying it should. On stage, Sanders and Harris both raised their hand when asked who would abolish private health insurance in favor of government-only plan, only if Harris backtracked saying she misunderstood the question. Good, playing close to the vest so she's not locked into something later. Uh, the poll counts to qualify candidates for both the second round of Democratic debates at the end of this month, in the third round of debates in September. Currently, 21 candidates qualified for the second debate. The 20 candidates who debated last week, plus Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who actually watched, he was on the late show with Stephen Colbert, kind of talking a little bit. So he's the 21st candidate. But the Democratic National Committee said it will limit the round to 20 candidates, meaning at least one qualifying candidate will be excluded. So we're going to see who drops off there. I wonder if we'll have one that'll bow out of this uh, election before we get to that point. There's a first poll that counts toward qualification for the September debate. To qualify, candidates must hit 12 or hit 2% in four DNC-approved polls and receive donations from 130,000 supporters. So far, seven candidates have publicly said they've crossed the donor mark. Biden, Buttigieg, Harris, O'Rourke, Sanders, Warren, and Andrew Yang. The poll surveyed 656 Democrats and Democratic-leading independents with live interviews from June 28th to 30th. The margin of error is plus or minus 4.7 percentage points. Thank you, Politico, for this lovely information. I think that's some good information. Obviously, um, you can go to YouTube, you can go on Facebook and stuff, and you can see clips from the debates. Um, I think it's good to watch some of these in context. If you see like the late night guys talk about it, they condense all the funny bits, and sometimes they make people look good, look bad. It's just how you spin it. But I think just by uh, paying attention to uh, what's being said, listen to their points, and I think as we start narrowing down this list, it'll become clear who the frontrunner should be, and who we should elect as the Democratic candidate for the 2020 election to take on Donald Trump in the general. So with that, I think that'll do it for episode 25 of Poor360 for this week. I want to thank you guys for listening. If you have any thoughts, feedback, anything I can do, please address me on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. I don't post on Instagram all that often. But yeah, that is uh, was Poor360 episode 25 on the 2020 debates. Definitely going to be bringing you uh, more feedback as the dates to come. As we get into the general, there will be a lot more coverage on this end. So I am Andrew Poor. You guys have a great week. You've been listening to Poor360. You can find us on the socials at Poor360 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us and all the other podcasts on our network at journeyintocomics.com or early access at patreon.com slash journeyintocomics. You can find us on all podcasting platforms like CastBox, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and many others.